A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We're in Romans chapter 5. The church where I grew up in a little town of Teleco Plains, Tennessee, many, many years ago, I'm thinking 1950s, was, was pretty sedate. It was the First Baptist Church, and I think somehow, at the time anyway, we'd kind of learned to pride ourselves on our sense of dignity, First Baptist, <laughs> and everybody seemed to sit pretty somberly in church, maybe with a kind of holy frown of seriousness on their faces. I think it's how we thought we were communicating reverence. Many of the hymns we sang were sung sedately. I guess it was supposed to be kind of a quiet kind of reverence. 
if we did happen to sing a hymn that was obviously meant to be sung with some spiritual energy, <laughs> we would we would often equate speed with spiritual enthusiasm. <laughs> We'd sing them really fast. <laughs> and I can remember some songs were so fast that I, at least as a kid, could could literally hardly stay up with the words. It was hard for me just to get all the words in, much less think about what they meant. <laughs> now, maybe you've been in a church like that. Some of you could probably identify with that a little bit anyway. A, a place where people are almost afraid to smile, you know. They, they wouldn't be so unholy as to laugh out loud or shout amen or hallelujah or praise the Lord because they don't want to sound too much like a happy, clappy Pentecostal, after all. That would just be way too disrespectful. I mean, that's kind of how we used to think. I think some of us did, anyway. And there are many, many churches across the land that do worship that way still. It's it's tragic. Sometimes I wonder what a first-century Christian would think if he were somehow to be transported into the future. So he's lived his life in the first-century church, and now he's in our church. And he looks at the quietness and the solemnity, and and, and we're thinking, well, this, this is supposed to be reverence. And I can imagine him looking around at us and saying, guys, I can tell by looking at you that some of you must be about to be sacrificed for your faith in Jesus. It looks like you're about to be executed. But please don't despair so much. Remember, if our earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So exult anyway. Just rejoice in the Lord. It's going to be okay. He's going to get you through this. <laughs> and if we said, wait, 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 no, 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 you don't understand. Christians today, where we are anyway, we're not usually thrown into the dungeons or put to death. We're not executed like you guys were in the first century. Uh, at least not where we are. Uh, you know, yeah, we realized you guys were pretty treated pretty horrifically. Paul and Silas and Peter were thrown into some pretty abominable, horrible prisons. Stephen was, stoned, of course, was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded. James was put to death with a sword. We could go on and on. But that doesn't happen much now. You're misunderstanding us. We're just worshiping God. We're just trying to be reverent. You understand? We're trying to be respectful. Well, at that point, I'm imagining my first century Christian friend might be a little incredulous. He might say, well, you know what? There's a lot to praise the Lord about. Why are you so quiet? Why do you look so sad? There's a lot to exult about. Uh, let's, let's, let's praise him. <laughs> now, now, the truth is, if I want to be really honest here, in recent decades even, things have changed, I think, for the better, for many of us Baptists anyway. Because some of us who used to sit in a worship service and look like we'd been baptized in pickle juice have begun to learn to praise the Lord. But there are a lot of us who still struggle at this point. We're a little bit afraid of looking unrespectable. We, we, we say, oh, it's just not me. That's not the way I express myself. And Maybe we're afraid somebody's going to laugh at us. We're afraid we're going to look foolish. Or maybe we're afraid somebody's going to think we're trying to show off. Or maybe somebody's going to, we're going to, we think somebody's going to think we're trying to get attention of some kind. And we get so busy thinking about other people instead of just focusing on the Lord, it's kind of hard for us to express our joy in Him because we're too wrapped up in thinking about what people think. You know, you, you know, you, can you identify with this? But as we have seen, one of these days very soon, we're going to stand before our Lord and behold Him in His glory. Remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago. And these fleshly bodies of ours are going to be stripped away. And we're going to be glorified. And, and we're, we're looking forward to that day. And when we think about that, it ought to cause us to exult in hope of the glory of God. We considered that just a few weeks ago. And when we finally get it really internalized into our heads and hearts, 
the reason why God allows tribulation and difficulty and pain to come into our lives, when we finally begin to understand what tribulation accomplishes, we finally understand that it produces this wonderful steadiness in us, we finally begin to understand it's bringing forth proof that we stood the test, it multiplies the depth of our hope, we'll eventually begin to exult and rejoice and boast and leap for joy even in tribulation. So we've considered all that in our recent studies in Romans. Well, there is one more exult in this passage, and it's found in verse 11. And we're going to get there in just a few minutes. But verses 6 through 10 lead up to it, and we need to look at it all together here. So let's read that passage of Scripture. Remember, this is God's Word. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And not only this, but we also exult in in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we receive the reconciliation. In verse 2, he said, we exult in hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he said, we exult in tribulation. And now here in verse 11, he says, we exult in God. We exult in God. And if you're watching this today, and you're a Christian, in other words, if, if we've put our trust in Jesus Christ alone, if we're trusting Him and His substitutionary death on the cross alone for our salvation, for our eternal life, if we've repented of our sins, received the Lord Jesus into our lives to rule over us, then when we grasp what He's teaching us in verses 6 through 10, we will find ourselves exulting in the Lord. Now, Please don't misunderstand me. I don't want us to get unbalanced here. I'm not trying to cheerlead you or pressure you in any way to raise your hands or to clap your hands or to shout hallelujah or to shout praise the Lord. I know people can do all those things without exulting in God. Those external things can be very superficial. I understand that. They can be just an external show. But when we really understand what God has done, when we really internalize these things, we'll begin to exult in our hearts. And for most of us, if we really begin to exult in our hearts, sooner or later, <laughs> it's going to come out. It's going to come out of our lips. It's going to come out in our body language. Now, I realize that for some of us, We've experienced many, many years of just learning to be very sedate, a little bit fearful of coming out of that shell. <laughs> and it can make it difficult for some Christians to express their joy. 
it's kind of the opposite phenomenon of the rebellious little boy. You remember the story of the boy whose daddy said, okay, that's son, that's enough. You need to sit down. <laughs> so the boy sat down. A little later, someone noticed he didn't look very happy. And they said, what's wrong, buddy? <laughs> and the little boy said, my dad made me sit down. So I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> well, some of us can be kind of quiet looking on the outside, but full of riotous joy on the inside. I think that's possible. It's sad, but I think it's possible. You remember what God told Samuel? Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The point I'm trying to make right now is that what really counts is not what you do with your hands or your voice. What counts is what's in your heart. But remember, Jesus also said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When abounding joy fills our hearts, it will usually find its way out of our lips unless we just clamp down on it. <laughs> Maybe we could compare it to being in the stadium when your favorite team is playing in the national championship or maybe in the Super Bowl, and they have just scored the winning touchdown in the final seconds of the game. And you're sitting there in the stands with your hands folded in your lap and your mouth very tightly shut while your heart is passionately cheering on your team. <laughs> well, I think it can be done, <laughs> but it just seems a little strange to me. The joy usually has a way of coming out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The context of this passage we're studying today, when you look at it carefully, makes us realize that at least one of the great problems that can cause many Christians to be robbed of their joy is an ongoing nagging doubt about their salvation. Something might happen to them, at least they're afraid of this, they're concerned about this, that may eventually cost them their relationship with God, that it won't always be good, and so they lose joy over that kind of fear. They just don't have that kind of assurance that they need. Many, many Christians get persuaded by the enemy that they've sinned so much. Oh, you can't really be a Christian. They'll hear the enemy whisper that thought to them. You, would, you wouldn't have sinned like that again. You wouldn't be given into that temptation. You wouldn't even be tempted like this if you were a real Christian. Satan whispers those kind of things. And so there are some people who really are Christians, but... They're afraid that eventually they're going to find out God's not going to let them into heaven after all, that it was all a mistake, that they really weren't trusting Jesus. They just kind of said the words, well, of course, we need to examine ourselves to see whether our faith is real. But it's not complicated, guys. We have to have the faith of a little child. But Satan can make us believe we couldn't possibly be acceptable to God. And it's easy to see if we get those kind of thoughts, we're going to lose joy. But one of the things that God makes very, very clear in this passage we're looking at today, as well as in the rest of his word, is he wants us to have a deep, abiding sense of assurance about the final outcome of our salvation. He wants us to get this assurance so firmly, so clearly in our heads, in our hearts, that this wonderful truth will lead us to exult in him. The truth is, God's given us a lot of passages in His Word that are designed to cause us to have that kind of assurance that will cause us to exult in God. God knew we would need these Scripture passages. That's why He put them in His Word. He knows how the enemy works, so we need to understand these passages. But Romans chapter 5, verses 6-11 through 11 really is one of the most powerful. Do you remember how I told you when we first started studying the book of Romans that I had read some years ago that at Harvard University, again, many, many years ago, men who were training to become lawyers and attorneys were 
required to study the book of Romans to learn how God used Paul to do very careful logic, very careful argumentation to lead people to come to the right conclusion about God's truth. Very powerful argument and logic here. Well, this is an example of one of those passages. Now, the book's full of them, but this is a very powerful divine argument, and it's designed to give assurance to God's kids. God's arguing here from the greater to the lesser. So he says, if I've done this one thing that's extremely difficult, extremely great, almost unbelievably great, certainly I will do this other thing, which by comparison is much less remarkable. Now that's his argument. That's his logic. So let's follow it here. He's saying there was once a time when I was an enemy of God. This is verse 10. We were enemies. There was a time when we by nature were sinners. That's in verse 8. While we were still sinners. Now I realize some of you might have a check here in your heart and say, wait, wait a minute, I thought I still was a sinner. <laughs> well, it depends on how you define sinner. That's true. We're all sinners in the sense that none of us have reached sinless perfection yet. We all stumble. We all lose our focus and we sin. But as Christians, of course, the Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin and we repent of that sin. We don't excuse it. We don't rationalize it. But the way God often uses the word in his word is that in Christ, we are no longer sinners. We are righteous people. We foolishly commit sin in spite of our new nature in Christ. There's no excuse for it. We're not slaves to it anymore. We're no longer basically sinners. We're basically righteous people. And it's because of what Christ has done for us. You see the picture? We may commit sin, but from God's perspective, it's just not good or accurate to refer to ourselves as sinners. In essence, we're in Christ. This is going to become much more clear as we work our way through chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's a very important truth. In any case, here in verse 8, he says, we were, past tense, we were sinners. And look again at verse 6. We were helpless. We were ungodly. So this was our condition before we came to Christ. We were enemies of God. We were vile sinners, slaves of sin. We were helpless. We were ungodly. We were essentially in rebellion against God himself. We wanted everything to go our way. We wanted to be in charge of ourselves. And if possible, we want to be in charge of other people too. <laughs> Spiritually, we were jerks. We were brats. We were full of ourselves. Now, what did God do? When we were in that condition, what did God do? He loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for us when we were in that condition. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You hear what he's saying? We were ungodly. We were helpless. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. And yet, while we were in that condition, he sent his son to shed his blood for us, to die for us. And he declared us to be righteous in Christ. And so now we've been reconciled to God 
through the death of his son. That's what he's saying in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You hear what God's saying here? There was a time when we were enemies of God. The wrath of God was upon us. Jesus came, took our sins upon himself on the cross, took God's wrath, poured out on him on the cross. The requirements of God's justice were met in Christ on the cross. And now we are no longer God's enemies. We've been reconciled to him. God looks upon us in mercy and grace. Then we were his enemies. Now we're his kids. And all of this is by his grace, by his grace alone. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 24. We were there sometime back, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing we could have done could have helped in the least. God had to do it all. No matter how hard we might have tried to make ourselves acceptable, we could not. We were unacceptable. We were sinners. We were enemies. And he reconciled us to himself anyway. So now comes the powerful arguments. Verse 9. Much more then. How much more then? Having now been justified by his blood, how much more certain it is now that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see God's logic? He's already done the hard part. He's already made righteous children out of his enemies. If he loved his enemies enough to do that, will he not love his kids enough to keep us? When we were ungodly enemies, he loved us enough to send his son to die for us. Will he now change his attitude toward us now that we are his kids? Now that we've been reconciled? It's unthinkable. That's his whole point. It is totally unthinkable. How could God love his enemies enough to make us into his kids and then change his attitude and quit loving us now that we're his kids? It's unthinkable. So he just drives it home in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. By the way, you may have noticed that the Greek preposition here uh, is, is by his life not in his life, and I'm translating it in his life. It's a very, very common Greek preposition. It's used over 2,800 times in the New Testament, and the vast majority of time is translated by the simple word in, I-N. And when we understand what he's teaching us in the next three chapters here, five, six, seven, eight, even, I think it's going to become clear to us that it should be translated in right here in chapter five as well. We are in Christ Jesus. We are in his life. In the next three chapters, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to elaborate on what that means. We're going to understand that better as we work our way through this. To be in Christ is very powerful. But for now, we just need to understand and, and, and see that in verse 10, he's saying, you were enemies. God reconciled you to himself through the death of his son. Now you are in him. You've been reconciled. You're children of God. Don't you know that God will certainly complete what he started? It's a very inadequate illustration, but it may help us get a little sense of this. Suppose you had a child who, for some reason, as he grew into adulthood, chose to rebel against you and considered himself to be your enemy. Suppose you've learned that he has actually stolen from you. He's robbed you. You've learned that he's cursed you. He's communicated his hatred for you. He's slandered you, told lies about you. In spite of all that, you find it in your heart to pity him. You try to show kindness to him, in spite of his hatred for you. You choose just to forgive him. 
And suppose later on he comes to his senses. He repents and he profusely apologizes to you and he's embarrassed and he thanks you for showing him kindness. Now that he's repented, if he messes up again, would you turn on him and throw him out? Get out of here. You've had your last chance. No, you're not going to do that. Well, God's even more loving than we could ever be. We were enemies of God. Now we're his kids. Certainly if we were enemies and he took us in, now that we're his kids, he's not going to throw us out. Look at another verse. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Pretty powerful, pretty clear. Look what Jude wrote in his little letter, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able. And you might say, well, okay, he's able. Yeah, I see Jude says he's able, but what if he's not willing? What if I mess up so badly that he's just not willing to? Well, look what Jesus said in Matthew 18. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God is willing. God is able. Our assurance is not based on our ability to keep ourselves. If that were the case, we'd be in a mess. But that's not true any more than it's true that our justification is based on our ability to cleanse ourselves. We know we can't do that. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't keep ourselves. Our assurance is based on his willingness and his power, his ability. Look what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Chapter 1, I'm sure of this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now listen, guys, God's word is full of this kind of assurance. On our website, aboundingjoy.com, I have a list of 20 or 30 passages like these. You can find it by doing a search of aboundingjoy.com or, or send me a, a text if you want to. I'll send you the link so you can go right to it with some brief comments there. I'll try to remember to put a link on the prayer request page for the class, but check it out. God wants us to understand this. God wants us to be internalized. Charles Spurgeon used to say this. I love it. He said, you can't drown the feet as long as the head's above water. Jesus is our head. If he can't drown, we can't drown. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right, back to Romans chapter 5, verse 11. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only this, not only have we been reconciled, not only is our ultimate salvation assured and sealed, but naturally, as a result of all this, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received the reconciliation. So, of course, we exult in God. Of course, we boast in God when we just stop for a little while and think about what he's done. He's reconciled us to himself, and he will keep us to the end. So it seems that the obvious, logical, appropriate thing to do is to exult with exceedingly great joy. You remember what Mary did when Gabriel brought her this incredible news that she's going to be the mother of the Christ, the Messiah? She exulted in God. 
Luke records it. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I think my wife's Vicky's favorite verse is Philippians 4, 4, but he underlines it. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. We must exult in God. God wants us to understand what he's done for us. He wants us to realize that when we really understand it, the most reasonable thing to do is to exult in him, to rejoice in him, always. Listen to how God used David to express it in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And so from time to time, we just need to stop and ask ourselves, am I really exulting in God? If not, what's wrong? Is it because I've really never received Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior? I'm just saying the words and I'm really still his enemy? We do need to examine ourselves, make sure we're in the faith. God commands us to do that. But don't make it complicated. We have to be like little kids. We just trust him. Maybe we're just not quite grasping how wonderful he really is and what an amazing thing he's done for us. Maybe we're just not spending enough time meditating on how amazing he is, what an amazing thing he's done for us in Christ. Meditating on God's truth can do some amazing things in our hearts and minds. It can change us from the inside out. Listen to what happened to the psalmist when he meditated on God. My soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. That's huge. It's really important. Look at this one. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. Here's another one. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Guys, stay with me. Please listen. We tend to be a very, very busy, active, rushing, hasty people. We're always in a hurry. Some of us would be a little terrified if we were forced to spend some time in solitude without our cell phones. <laughs> and the result of all that hurry, having things to occupy our minds constantly, can be that we just don't enjoy the Lord like we should. We just simply tend not to pause. We don't stop long enough just to meditate on Him and on His wondrous works. 
we tend not to pause long enough to cause us to exult in Him. We may think about Him briefly from time to time through the day. We may send a quick thank you, Lord, up every now and then. That's good. I'm all for that. But our tendency is to move on kind of quickly, move our minds to something else. And sometimes we just have to spend enough time with Him to think for a while about what all this means that He's telling us here in His Word. He's justified me. He's keeping me. He's brought me through many, many dangers and toils and snares. And He's going to bring me home one of these days. It's all settled. What else can I do but exult in Him? One of the most beloved old hymns of all time, probably the most beloved old hymns of all time, communicates this very, very powerfully. Again, if we'll just think deeply on what we're singing, this might be a good time for us to sing it together. Why don't you sing it with me? If you're somewhere where you don't mind people hearing your voice, <laughs> maybe it'll help us get a fresh sense of appreciation of what God's done, what He's doing, what He's going to do. Maybe this old hymn will help us exult in Him a little bit. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Next verse. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Thank you, Lord. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Here's the next verse. Meditate on this one, guys. Think about it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Can't sing and cry at the same time, can I? And then that wonderful last one. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Isn't that awesome? One more. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. 
Thank you for teaching us that you've done things that should cause us to exult in you. And Lord, forgive us for getting so wrapped up in this world of things that are passing away and getting in such a hurry that we just don't stop often enough to meditate deeply on what you've done and let you cause our hearts to exult. You're awesome, Father. You're awesome in all your ways and all that you've done. And Lord, when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ on that cross purchasing us for you when we were enemies, when we were godless, when we were in rebellion against you, when we were helpless, he died for us and redeemed us and reconciled us to you so that we could be your kids. So thank you, Father, for the assurance you give us now that you're certainly never going to cast us out. And Lord, we thank you for the future that we're going to get to have with you one of these days. Help us to meditate deeply. Help us to learn to exult in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.